morning's scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. As I teach them everywhere in every church, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of those arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? The word of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we again open your word this morning, we pray, Lord, for your spirit to guide our hearts and minds, that he would help us to understand these words of Paul that can be difficult to, for us to be able to digest, Father. And Lord, we pray that we would see a change, Father, that we could pattern our lives according to what Paul is encouraging us all to do so, Lord, and that you would be glorified in that. And may the words I speak be not of my own, but be of you. For it is in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. So we have and are looking again at Paul's writings, in particular the book of 1 Corinthians. And we have seen Paul's writings as we went through the book of Romans before this. And something that stands out to me in in a lot of Paul's writings is his use of metaphors. Paul was the king of metaphors. Now, a metaphor is a, a figure of speech that refers to one thing without necessarily mentioning it. It aids in our understanding of the thing that it's pointing to without it being mentioned. It helps us and attempts to clarify things in our minds. In this letter alone, we've seen Paul use it many times. We've seen him refer to himself as a servant of the church, a slave to God, a steward of God's mysteries. In chapter 3, he used the farmer metaphor. Remember that? When he says, I planted in Apollos water. Clearly, it's a figure of speech. He wasn't necessarily removing soil and planting, and Apollos wasn't watering, but that's what a metaphor is. It helps us to understand that. Also, in chapter 3, he turned into a builder or carpenter. Remember whenever he talked about himself being a master builder, building on a foundation that wasn't laid before. And so again, that was Paul's use of a metaphor. This morning, we are going to see that again. Anyone have any idea of what the metaphor is going to be this morning? Me! It's not you. It's up there. A father. A father. And so we're going to see that play out as we go through this passage this morning. Now, as we get ready to dive into this passage, it's important for us to know from where we came. Now, Paul has been writing to the Corinthian church, and I hesitate to use the word attacking because he doesn't necessarily attack them. He admonishes them. He warns them of 
how they are acting. And the fact that they had a great deal of arrogance and conceit and that was building up within them and showing itself in the way that they acted. And so he was exhorting them to change. And we saw that play out basically through the first three to four chapters in this one. And then we saw it reach a crescendo last week. And we saw it reach that pinnacle last week where he just lets them have it with both barrels, so to speak. And he did so by using sarcasm. And if you don't read that passage and understand that he was using sarcasm whenever he was writing to them, then you're not going to understand that passage at all. But that's what we looked at. He wrote wrote to them that out of conceit, they had reached some spiritual level that even he nor none of the other apostles had reached. Clearly, he didn't mean that literally. He knew that actually the opposite was true. The apostles... Their spiritual adulthood or the level that they had reached was greater than what the church at Corinth had reached. But nonetheless, he wanted to demonstrate them through the use, to them through the use of sarcasm that they weren't correct in their understanding. So after he blasted them last week and he reached that emotional crescendo in his writing, <clears throat> then he begins to tone it down just a little bit this week but you're going to see that this toned down version doesn't last long we'll be jumping into the fifth chapter next week and you're going to see he comes right back after and he jumps right back on top of the situation and dealing with the problems at the church next week but this morning it's a little bit toned down and the nature of it is a little less aggressive verse 14 I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. So as we go through this, those of you that have children, think of whenever you're correcting your child, and we're going to go directly to that in a few moments, but it's a lot in the same manner. He deals with it in the same manner that that we do as parents, as physical parents or fathers or mothers of our children. He just let them have it. And then he cools off a little bit here. And he says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Now, this whole first part of verse 14 is, can be a little bit confusing because he says, I don't write these things to you to make you ashamed. Now, the word shame is interesting. And as I've said before many times, Shame's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Shame has a way of dealing with us as individuals. Shame is created by God to make us understand and know when we're doing something that's not right. Correct? And so part of the problem with our society these days is we try to take shame out of the way. We, we, we remove shame to where there is no shame anymore. No one feels bad about doing or saying anything. And so the, sh- the shame that God has created to try to correct us is gone. So shame has in and of itself a very redeeming quality in that it can change what we say and how we act and even sometimes how we think. So I don't think that's what Paul is trying to say here. I don't think that he wanted to totally remove this idea of shame 
from the situation. It's very clear that he wrote to the Corinthians because they needed to change the way they were going about being Christians. They needed to change the way that they were acting and the things that they were saying as far as being a Christian and and how to move forward. He wants them to feel bad about what they're doing and saying. He just let them have it last week. Clearly, that, that, that wasn't Paul's point. This idea of or notion of changing their behavior was directly what he was trying to accomplish, especially in last week, by last week's passage. But at the same time, you notice the tenor of this passage. He didn't want to berate them. He wanted them to understand what they were doing was wrong, but he didn't want to berate them to the point where they felt like he didn't respect them as people, as brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, people can be so berated and offended that it sort of pushes them the other way, right? They, they, they really don't want to be a part of whatever it is that you're trying to change. So there's a delicate balance, and Paul, we see him playing out that delicate balance here in the middle of chapter 4. I think he was telling them that he didn't want them to think that he would lost all respect for them, that he didn't respect them as human beings, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember, he was doing this, writing them about these things for their own benefit. And I think that can sometimes get lost in the discussion. He was wanting them to correct their behavior, but he wanted them to correct their behavior because he cared for them. And part two of this verse clarifies this a little bit, where he says, I'm not berating or I'm not trying to make you ashamed to the point that I'm pushing you away, but I'm admonishing you as my beloved children. I'm giving you this advice. I'm telling you that you should do this and shouldn't do that because I love you. Because I have a desire to see what's best for you. And that's a delicate balance for all of us as parents, right? It's just that balance that we all have to try to seek and find as we raise children. What does that look like? If you go overboard, you likely do more damage than you would if you perhaps hadn't done anything. So there's a danger there. And you have to try, as I said, to find that balance. So Paul is saying here that he doesn't want to go overboard, but at the same time, he wants them to understand that he's trying to change their actions so that they act in a way that is consistent of being a Christian. He wants them to understand that he's not just throwing stones at them that he loves them and he cares about all their eternity. And he doesn't want them to think there is no hope. He doesn't want to say, you all are a conceited, arrogant group of people. End of story. I'm done with you. He wants them to know that there's always the hope of repentance. Always that hope of repentance. Now we will see as we progress throughout these next few chapters 
that the exhortations may change in gravity and they may increase given the circumstance. But he never withdraws this idea or notion that there is hope for repentance. So while the words may ramp up, the actions may become more egregious, there is still that hope of repentance that is always there and always exists in every exhortation, no matter how harsh it may be or seem. Because that's the ultimate goal, right? I mean, if there wasn't a hope to change and repent, then who really cares about the exhortation or the request to change? There would be no desire to do that. So that's always there, and we must never lose sight of that either. Verse 15. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So he just told them that they are his beloved children, that he loves them. And then he continues to build on that metaphor. And he builds it by contrasting two, diff- two sets of people. Two sets of people that give advice to this church. Though you have many guides, you have very few fathers. There are many people that give advice, right? There are many people that think that that's their calling in life. Just going to give advice, whether you ask for it or not, right? The Corinthian church was no different. There were a lot of folks in there that were giving advice. They were believing that they were guiding that church in the direction that they thought best. We really don't know where their hearts were, but we're going to see later that Paul's going to come and he's going to look at that. They were just people who had opinions on what they thought was right. And they were quick to tell each other and the church how they should act given a certain situation. They seem to care about those in the church. And that's quite normal. They seem to care. Thus given the reason why they're always offering advice. In reality, there's one most important person in that guide's life. Who is that person? Me. Not me, but themselves. When you, when you peel it all away, they just want you to do what they're telling you to do. Because it's all about themselves. But he says, you've got a lot of voices out there. And a little bit later, we're going to say, I don't know really where their heart is. But I know that I'm a voice as your father. I'm acting as your father. He's saying there's not many people that love and care for you like your father or mother. And we know that's true, right? I mean, I love this metaphor because it's so beautiful and demonstrates the point that Paul's trying to make so well. There's a lot of people giving you advice out there and they're just associations. 
They're just guides. It's a lot of noise. But I'm giving you advice as a father would their child. I'm giving you advice because I love you. I want what's best for you. I want you to spend eternity with me in Christ Jesus. I'm more than just a friend or an acquaintance or just somebody you run into. He says, I am am your father. Now, he's not meaning that he's their physical father, ergo the metaphor, but he's saying that he was their spiritual father. That he was their spiritual father because he led them to the knowledge of Christ Jesus as their Savior. He shared the gospel with them. Now clearly he didn't lead everyone in that church at Corinth to Jesus, but he's saying, I was there when the church began. I've helped develop that church. He built on his own foundation. And he was the spiritual father of basically everyone in that church. He's saying, the advice that I am giving you has nothing to do with my own desire to manipulate and make you do whatever I want you to do. My desire to give you advice has everything to do with eternity and your own well-being and goodness. He's saying, I love you and I want you to finish the race. I have no hidden agenda other than that. I want you to finish the race strong. I want you to finish the race on your feet. Now, fatherly admonishment or motherly admonishment can be difficult. I think everyone in here that's had children or been around children that you love dearly know that it's hard and can be trying. And as I said, there's a fine line between admonishing and damning, right? Hugs and kisses and words of affection are nice, but oftentimes they don't work. It's just the way we are as human beings. And sometimes it's a sliding scale. And that scale slides based on the level of danger the child is entering, right? The admonishment for breaking a toy is probably going to look a lot different than the admonishment for a child throwing a temper tantrum and running right out into the middle of a busy street. The latter's probably going to leave a mark. And the latter probably should leave a mark. I'm not condoning abuse, okay? Let's just make that straight up. And with each time they run out in that busy street, things probably get amped up. For all we know, this was Paul's first attempt to to correct what was going wrong in the Corinthian church. So he gives an admonishment, says, you guys know that I'm just doing this because I love you. Now, if they disregard this, jump right back in, it's going to get more difficult. And that sliding scale is going to become greater and greater and greater. 
as he attempts to change their conduct. We do the same things with our children. The first time isn't much, the second time maybe more, and as they continue to endanger their lives, then the admonishment becomes more severe, and the punishment becomes more severe. He was certainly stern with them, but nonetheless, he makes sure that they know that they love him, or that he loves them. Paul's dealing with spiritual admonishment. It's a little bit different than the admonishment that we have with our children, isn't it? I mean, we try to do everything in our power to make sure they draw their next breath. What's more important? Ponder that. And your answer will depend based upon the amount of faith that is within your heart. What's more important is the spiritual life and well-being of your child more or less important than their physical well-being. It is. It is. But what's more difficult for us to do? Is it more difficult for us to spank their bottom when they run out in the middle of a busy street than it is for us to correct their behavior spiritually when they're doing things that you know aren't good for their spiritual well-being in all eternity? The latter, right? It just is. Part of it's our own hearts coming into play in this. Part of it is we look back and we think, you know, I did and acted a lot like that. Right? It makes it hard. And, and I don't know how I would have acted if somebody had come to me and said, Scott, you need to stop. What would have my reaction have been? Well, when my child is running out in the middle of a busy interstate, do I look back and think, well, I did that when I was a kid, so I'm not going to say anything to him. No! That's foolish! That's silly! It's the same way with spiritual admonishment. Eternity is far more important than the 80, 70, 60, 50 years we walk this earth. And if we don't understand that, then it's our lack of faith and belief in Jesus Christ. Paul could have very easily said, you know what? I held the coats of all the guys when they drug Stephen before me. I cheered them on as they stoned him time after time after time until he died. Who am I to correct these people in this church? He didn't say that. Because Paul was a different person at the time he wrote this letter than what he was at the time he held the coats that those were sto- for those who were stoning Stephen. And he knew that because he loved them and loved them well, that he had to worry and care about eternity because nobody else was. These guides that they had, had their own agenda. So, moms, dads, brothers and sisters, all of us, it is our duty to be spiritual fathers to each other. It's not just a Paul thing. 
It's not just a me thing. It's our responsibility out of love for each other. We jump to Hebrews chapter 12. It's a very appropriate passage. Obviously, I'd think that because I included it. But it's very appropriate to what Paul's doing here when the writer of Hebrews writes in verse 5, And have you forgotten the exhortation, the admonishment that addresses you as sons? We see, we see the same type of metaphor going on here. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of the spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So we see here that, that God disciplines us. And I think inherently we, we know and believe and understand that. But I think the bigger question is, how does he do it? What does this look like in the flesh? And I'll follow that up with another question. How does he save us? Does God look down at us and do one of these and we're saved? Is that the way he goes about doing it? No, of course not. He saves us by somebody spreading the gospel message to others that hear it and the Holy Spirit is working inside to make that ground fertile and respond to that message. He saves people through us. So then, how does he go about disciplining people? Does he just do it the same way? How does he make us see that we're on the wrong path? Same way. The same way. Without Paul, do you think the Corinthians had any idea what they were doing was wrong? No. Not a clue. The discipline of God requires us all to pick each other up. Make sure we know we love each other most, most of all. And that was the point he was making in the passage this morning. The same way we don't allow our children out into the busy street, we don't allow them to go down a path that's going to lead to destruction without telling them about it. I think that God disciplines in the same way he saves in and through us all, each and every one. 
Back to verse 16. Paul says, I urge you then be imitators of me. Act as a Christian the way you see him act, he says. He encourages them to follow his ways instead of those guides. Now clearly the distinction is there. He doesn't want them to act like he acted before he knew Christ. In verse 17 he says, I even sent Timothy. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So he sent Timothy prior to this letter, so this is his second attempt, actually, to show them the errors of their ways and what it meant to be a true follower of Jesus. And so then we remember back in the sarcasm that last week, the sarcasm that he used, he was telling them to follow his example. You recall he said, you all are kings. We could only wish that we've reached the level of maturity that you all have reached. He didn't really mean that. So he was telling them that, that being a true follower of Christ didn't mean to put yourself first. It meant that you suffer, that you go through times of hunger, that you serve others, that you put others first was the point that he was making to them. That you hunger and thirst, that you are beaten, that you're slandered, and you certainly aren't kings. Some are arrogant, and I think this directly points to those guides that he was talking about. Some are arrogant, though I were not coming to you. So we have this arrogant group, again, that I, I said I believe that are these guides that are always giving advice. So what else are they telling? Not only are they giving advice to the, those in Corinthian, or Corinth that basically everything that you're doing is okay, don't worry about anything, all goes, but they're saying, and where is Paul? Where's he at? You want to follow him? I don't see him around here, do you? So he's saying, they're so arrogant, they're saying that don't listen to me because I'm not there. There are guides who are quick to give advice and do not have your eternal best interests at heart. If Paul had been silent and not responded at all, do you think they would have changed that? No, they would have been perfectly happy listening to their guides that, guides that were with them. And they continue to voice their sense of direction or what they think is right. And without Paul's voice, that would have been the only voice that they would have heard. So it is up to and depending on us as brothers and sisters in Christ to make sure that our voice, that the voice of the Word of God is heard in the wilderness. Because if that's turned off, then there's no other voices that are talking. Just those that say what they want. Paul says, even though they say I'm not coming, verse 19, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people but their power so Paul is saying I'm going to come to you if the Lord wills 
And when he comes, he's going to determine the true hearts of these guides that are given all sorts of advice. It's a little strange, isn't it? He says, well, what about this power? What does it mean when he says, I'm going to find their power or understand their power? So what Paul's meaning is the efficiency of the Holy Spirit. They claim to be godly. They claim to know God. But he's saying, when I come, I'm going to find out the work of the Holy Spirit in these people's lives that are giving you the wrong advice. If they are true followers and and have the Holy Spirit in their lives, then their actions will be consistent with their words in working in and through Christ Jesus. And within this passage, I think, is an intimation that Paul really doesn't believe that these people that are giving them advice are really Christians. But he doesn't go that far. He sort of tiptoes around it. Amen. For the Holy Spirit does not consist of talk, but how he works in and through our lives. What a beautiful passage, and Paul couldn't have put it any clearer. It's easy to talk, it's easy to give advice, but I see proof of the Holy Spirit of how you lead your life, and that was the point he was making. If all these people want to give advice that they say is true, let's look a little deeper and see how they apply the Spirit to their lives. Then he asked the question, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Again, sort of like the point I made at the very beginning, sometimes a rod's necessary, right? We see that in the Bible. Spare the rod, spoil the child. The rod is sometimes necessary. But Paul was saying, for now, I'm going to come with you in a spirit of gentleness and we will move forward. So he's contrasting the rod and the spirit of gentleness. And he does visit them. And I think he gives us the blueprint of how we are to go about doing it. The first move isn't with rod, right? The first move is to make sure that we love each other and each other knows it. And we come to them with that spirit of gentleness. And that was the point Paul was making. How do you wish for me to come to you? How do you want me to come to you? And what is the first thing you want me to do? Do you want me to come in there turning over tables and running everybody out? No. It is progressive. It is a spirit of love and gentleness. That that is his first impression. When I come to you, I'm going to come believing the best. I'm going to come loving you all with all my heart being gentle and kind as I deal with the issues that are in that church. And I think we can take a lot of advice from that and how we deal and love each other. If we love each other well, we come in that spirit of kindness, love, and gentleness. If you come a different direction, you're probably going to get the hand. Now, it's not to say that that 
coming in spirit, love, kind, and gentleness doesn't get amped up. But you never lose that spirit, but it gets amped up to something more because, again, we're out playing in the road, which is a busy interstate, and somebody's going to get run over, and eternity's going to be destroyed. We don't want that. We want to love and love them well. So we can look at this and say, well, this doesn't really have any application to us because it's Paul and it's the Corinthian church and it's not us. And I would say, well, if that's the opinion, then none of the Bible has any application to us at all. I think we can take a lot from this passage and it's only going to get worse. I'm warning you. I mean, next week we're going to begin looking at a situation where a son is having relations with his mother or mother-in-law. That's a little unclear, unclear what that is. But we're going to see how Paul deals with that nasty mess. So it's not going to get any easier. But I think we can take a lot from this. Number one is we come in a spirit of gentleness and love. And we only do these things out of that love. And we have to understand that that's our goal. Our goal is to look out for eternity and love each other well. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these words of Paul. We thank you for Paul and his willingness, Father, to be used as your servant to demonstrate that he truly was a spiritual father, not only to the church at Corinth, but to us all. Father, help us to be spiritual fathers and mothers to each other, not only our own children, but just to each other, Father. Let us know and understand how much we love each other through you, Father, that you give us that ability and opportunity, that we come not on any agenda, other than eternity, because we want us all to make it to the end of this race, make it to the end of this race on our feet and in good condition where you say, welcome home, my good and faithful servant. We long for that to be the story for everyone that's hearing this message this morning. And may you be glorified in and through that. For it's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Let's all rise.